Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore how the imagery and visuals that are infused into racist and misogynistic tropes today can be traced to classical works of art, including both the intentional message of the artist, as well as the cultural context we bring, and how we interpret and use that imagery. We also discuss how the art we think of as canon was actually deliberately and intentionally defined in an early and successful PR effort that persists to today. My guest is Letha Chen, Assistant Professor of Art History at Sonoma State University. So to start, I just want to talk about European art, and you love it, and you see it in a lens that I think is not something we think about. Talk a little bit about that and how you actually see it. Okay, I do love European art. I I love it so much. It's interesting and beautiful and complex, and there's so much to learn about it, and it makes me happy. It's also horrifying. There's so much racism and sexism and hierarchy, promotions of class inequality in their uh, denigration of disability, uh, bodily difference. That's all there. A student of mine actually said to me today, I feel bad about liking Renaissance art. And I said, I understand, but it's kind of like your racist uncle. You can (laughs) acknowledge that he's racist and you don't have to accept that or, or tolerate that, but you can also love your uncle for his good qualities and they don't have to be separate. You can acknowledge the bad with the good. Okay. I want to get into the bad or to the problematic aspects of it, but before we do that, specifically tell me why you love it. I love art in general because it's a way of thinking about the world and concepts and ideologies. It takes an idea and it puts it out of your head into a place where you can contemplate it. And you can see things and you can imagine things that aren't actually real in the world through the abstraction and the representation of them. It's a way of thinking about things. European art, and by that I'm assuming you're you're thinking medieval, renaissance, 18th, 19th century. Yeah. We don't normally count the ancient stuff in European art, even though European art also has prehistoric art, same as everywhere else. <laughs> what we mean when we say European art It's engaged culturally at such a complex level with religious ideology, ideologies of what it means to be human, social organization, who we want to be, who we're afraid of being. All of that is not just appearing in the art, but also being shaped by the art. The art is not separate from culture in general. Okay, so it's being shaped by the art and the art in the canon Mm -hmm. is often art made by white men, uh, people who were given patronages. So I want to talk a little bit about 
the voices that are represented that have become the canon. For me, I come at it, I mean, I'm a communications person, a former journalist, but I was an English major. So the concepts you talk about, I can easily obviously relate to my favorite 19th century English literature. Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't get enough of Jane Eyre. I can't get enough of, there's a great kind of obscure book called Lady Audley's Secret. Like I can't get enough of that, but how representative is that? Not at all of the wider landscape. And yet that is what we point to. So in the context of art, what does that say about us and that it's defining things for us? What's missing? It's no secret that the canon is composed of white male artists mostly making art for white men. And that's not true of art on the whole or even art in Europe. Art in Europe, if you look at the entire historical record and all of the artifacts we have, is much, much more diverse than the canon. The canon comes out of a story that forms in the 19th century during a period of the nation state, during a period of eugenics, during a period of heavy racism formation and colonization around the world. And that's what's persisted, right? Yeah, it has an agenda and it's perpetuated by so many different factors. And once an artist becomes part of the canon, we start to think everybody needs to know about this artist. Everybody needs to know about Leonardo da Vinci. You're not an educated person if you don't know about Leonardo da Vinci. Don't you know about Leonardo da Vinci? Haven't you gone to Paris? Haven't you seen the Mona Lisa? Who are you if you haven't gone to Paris and seen the Mona Lisa? Where is it on your Instagram? And it's become standard culture for a certain level of of class in the United States. Then I ask, you know, not that those aren't amazing pieces of art, obviously they are. How do we rethink that? If you're given one set of content and messaging, like what happened to the rest of it? Oh, it's there. It's still there. Yes. And a lot of it is still owned by famous museums like the Louvre. Uh, Some of it is in storerooms, but some of it is on the wall. It's just not on the guided tours. It's not on the little brochure you get with the top 10 things not to miss when you go to the museum. It's not in the gift shop. They don't sell puzzles or postcards of it, but it's there. It is absolutely there. The trick is you got to get off the beaten path and be open to seeing that. And some of the art is indeed famous, but we haven't seen parts of it. The Italian Renaissance artist Veronese painted a very large Christ in the House of Levi that's now at the Academia Museum in Venice. Very famous painting, lots of people go see it, shows up in art history classes. About a fifth of the figures in it are black. And I show it to my students frequently and then I take it off the screen and say, were there any figures of color? And they say, oh no, it's an Italian Renaissance painting. Or, well, I guess since you're asking, maybe one or two. And then I put it back on the screen with circles around each figure of color. And they're there, but we're not seeing them. We're not seeing them. Yeah. So even the works of art that are on display, that are famous, that actually do show up in the gift shop, we're not seeing what's there. Uh, A famous example is Manet's Olympia from the 19th century. It shows a white woman who worked as a sex worker in Paris in the 19th century, and sex work was a big social concern. And it also features a Black woman bringing in flowers. A very famous art historian who actually did teach me wrote an entire book chapter about this painting without mentioning the Black maid. There are two figures in the painting. 
So to not mention one seems like more than an oversight. Right. Well, what's that about? What is it about us that we're not seeing? Well, frankly, it's our own racism because we're taught what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to. And it's not like we're born saying, oh, there's a painting with two figures. I only look at one of them. But we're taught over time to pay attention to white figures. And we're taught in the art history classes not to notice the black figure. You read high level art history, you take an art history course at a college, and one of two figures is simply ignored entirely. Even though she's an integral part of the composition, she's not some teeny tiny thing in the background. She's present, she's there. Talk a little bit about how we manage all these layers of racism and sexism in this in this stuff. I'm so glad you brought that up because there are these two separate components. There's the art itself and what message it's conveying, what ideology it's encoding, if it has racist or sexist or both content. And then there's us and there's what we bring to the artwork with our own backgrounds, our own cultural understandings. And so the painting may do one thing and then we might do another. And art historians are not immune from their own culture. We are all culturally contingent. We all live in a particular time and place and we have culture and we have cultural biases and we bring that to the painting. That art history comes from the 19th century, comes out of a tradition of nationalism that was based on creating an idea of race, the idea of style coming from a particular place, a particular race of people. That's the origin of my field. And that's really dangerous. So you're saying that art history as a field came from this space of of certain groups, European or white national groups, saying we want to deliberately and intentionally define art and what is art in a certain way. Am I getting that right? Yes. Art history develops in tandem with projects of the nation state and particularly in Germany as it tries to become an official country after years of being fragmented principalities. Trying to figure out what is a German style, what is a German way of being. So in Germany, they start trying to rehabilitate medieval art as really good and really German. And to change the narrative away from the praise heaped on the Italian Renaissance. No, as an Italian, I can say, I don't want that. <laughs> uh, so this also had an agenda. It came from the 16th century. A guy named Giorgio Vasari wrote what's often considered to be the first official work of art history called The Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors, and Architects. And he centered it around Italy. Well, of course. Of course. Specifically, the area of Italy he was from. And he wrote it for the Duke of Florence. <laughs> so it says Florentine art is the best. This is not surprising. It establishes Florence as the center. And you still go on a tour to Italy today. You go to Florence and there are a hundred tour guides saying the cradle of the Renaissance is in Florence. Birthplace of Michelangelo. And guess what? Michelangelo was the hero of Vasari's book. So it was all PR. Our conception of art history and the best artists in the world was a very successful PR job. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, you should really read the life of Michelangelo in this book because it says that God sent Michelangelo to earth to save us from the 
error of our ways. No way. And it goes all through Michelangelo's life. And then, then at the very end, when he dies, there's a funeral procession. And Vasari tells us his body didn't smell bad. It smells like flowers, just like a saint's body doesn't decompose when a saint dies. So he's this divine, supernatural figure. So Germans in the 19th century are trying to redirect this narrative and to develop something good about being German. And then this imitation Black Gothic script gets picked up eventually by the Nazis. And they are doing medieval cosplay. Their idea of the Middle Ages as this time of whiteness, of Christianity, of monoracial, monoculture, monoethnicity world in which Germans were great leads to the heavy usage of this pseudo-Gothic script. Wow. Wow. And they're not the only ones. The KKK is a medieval cosplay organization. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Letha Chen, Assistant Professor of Art History at Sonoma State University. We don't realize how much has persisted. I mean, we can look at the art and we can discuss it, but at the, at the same time, we live in a cultural context where these images of women are still in our movies and our TV shows. And the way we treat each other based on ethnicity is tied up into uh, power structures and power dynamics and supremacy. You mentioned uh, in something you wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle that images of anti-Semitism that were done hundreds of years ago are still completely recognizable to us today. What I love about the conversation right now is connecting the dots and the PR and the intentional nature of trying to nudge things in a certain direction, but also that idea of these concepts and these imagery, they aren't just dead worlds of medieval art or Renaissance art. They're things that have persisted that we apply to media in, in all senses right now. Thank you. That's such an important point. It's not dead. It's not over. The ways we think about race, the ways we think about gender, the ways we think about hierarchy, whose lives matter, whose lives don't matter. We have inherited these ideas from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This anti-Blackness really starts fomenting in the Middle Ages in Europe. It gets associated with the demonic, with the inhuman, with sin, and it grows until Blackness and the categories of enslavement become fused. And it happens over time in a series of images. And to watch it grow is is very depressing. And we have to understand this history if we're going to dismantle it. We have to understand how it works. How did we get to this point? Because the 18th century pseudoscience, pseudo-race science of trying to build a physiognomic type of evolution of black skull shapes being bad and white skull shapes being good. And the white skull shape, by the way, is based off of the classical sculpture, the Apollo Belvedere. So it wasn't even an actual person. It's a sculpture Whoa. of a god, of the god Apollo. It's kind of unbelievable, but it comes from a tradition that said ancient sculpture is good. Ancient sculpture is the best. Ancient sculpture is ideal. The 18th century inherits that and says white people are like ancient sculpture. White people are marble people, which is absurd. But it sounds just a little bit plausible to us today because we've inherited the same messages that classical art is somehow realistic, not 
beautiful, idealized, morphed ideas of human bodies and that they're white and it's only becoming popularly known now that ancient sculpture was painted. It was very brightly colored. Yeah, marble happens to be white, but it doesn't mean that's how they were depicted at the time. <laughs> exactly. And we've known the whole time that these sculptures were painted. There were little bits of colored fragments behind ears in the elbow joints. And some of it was scrubbed off by 19th century curators to further emphasize and create that idea of whiteness. That's fascinating. There are PR reasons for this, but it's not to say that this stuff isn't beautiful and stunning. Like you started out by saying you love this art. This stuff is beautiful and compelling, right? Which probably makes it ideal for framing, I guess. It's a good delivery vehicle. If you didn't like to look at it, it wouldn't be effective. But you look at it and you absorb it and you get the message without thinking about it because it's subtle. It's not ham-fisted. When you look at a sculpture like the Apollo Belvedere, which is a tall statue of a beautiful male figure in a graceful pose, you think pretty. And that's okay. And it's not actually the sculpture's fault that it got pressed into a service of white supremacy. It's used on Identity Europa posters, the group that's been designated a hate group by SPLC, by Southern Poverty Law Center. It's used by white supremacists as what they are fighting for in white nationalism. That's not the sculpture's fault. Now, there is artwork that is racist that is actually promulgating racist messages. Can you give me an example or two? Well, there's the bath by Jean-Léon Jerome that's at the Legion of Honor. There are a lot of examples. Some of my favorites are what I call difference portraits that show a wealthy white person dressed up to the nines and then a diminutive smaller black figure often identified as servant in modern titles, but most likely enslaved really pick up in the 16th century, like Titian's portrait of Alfonso Davalos Vasto show a larger white figure and a smaller black figure, as if the white figure cannot be understood as great without the smallness of the black figure. The black figure has to be made smaller. And then these pick up in the 18th century, women, men with tiny, tiny, tiny black figures. There's even a portrait of a toddler with a black servant, and the black servant is smaller and lower. Toni Morrison was interviewed, I think, by Charlie Rose, and she said, what are you if you're not stepping on somebody else? What do you have without whiteness and without the difference, without oppressing somebody else? Who are you? Can you be great if you're not greater? And these portraits are so frightened. I look at them and see people who know that they aren't actually better than anybody else and that they need to create these images of being better to try to create a consensus where we all at least pretend that they are to force the category of blackness to be one of servility, of smallness, of lesser than. 
and they don't just picture themselves by themselves, just as a person, even as a very rich person. Right. I, you know, it's funny. I, you know, I always tell my nieces and nephews, happy people don't try to hurt other people. Like, you know, when they deal with bullying, or it's not right and you need to not let it happen. But think about the fact that something else is going on and they're trying to... I think about that and I'm like, why would anyone want to define themselves in that way? White supremacy, it feels as if there's an insecurity there because why would you need to make such a declaration of being better if you were secure in that that thought? It still causes real harm. And now you're talking about this artwork, which again, things don't exist in a vacuum. You know, it's like this artwork, we could be talking about Confederate statues, as we mentioned. We could be talking about things that happen at schools. We can be talking about violence against Asian Americans and Black Americans in the U.S. We can talk about all these things, but these sort of foundational elements are, are there throughout. I guess it's less surprising to me than it used to be, but it's still like, oh, there it is again. Yeah. Uh, the strength of it and the commonness of it are overwhelming. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of us don't want to see it when we're in a museum, because it's just too much. It, it's so ugly and it's so prevalent. It seems like there's nothing that isn't free from racism and from violence. And I am sympathetic to that but I don't think we can ignore it. I understand wanting a break. We'd all love to have a break from the shootings and the racism and all of it that seems to just come and come and come. And this week has been really hard for a lot of America. If we don't look, we won't be able to stop it. You know, you're an educator and you're uh, an educator of, of color and you're a woman and you have the ability to talk about this stuff, you know, as you are doing. So how do you bring this into a space when you're training young, passionate, excited, new art historians or, or students who are taking it for GE? How do you bring these concepts in to help move this space and this thinking forward? I think it's impossible not to. I think our students live in a racialized world with lots of racist violence and want to know why. And they ask questions. I do my best to both answer their questions and to give them the tools to answer them themselves as they keep looking at art, as they keep looking at images around them and what's happening. In specific senses, mention the black figure in Manet's Olympia, you know, and talk about her as a figure in a two-figure painting. That's really basic. Do that. And then also talk about whiteness. A lot of efforts of diversity don't look at whiteness. They just try to, as they say, add or include people of color, which should be done. But whiteness is part of the conversation. So if you look at a Renoir painting, like the Moulin de la Galette, which show a bunch of people outside at a cafe having a nice weekend, they're entirely white. Paris in the 19th century was not entirely white. It wasn't. It also doesn't show 
any laborers. There's nobody waiting the tables. And so to think about what is shown by asking ourselves what is not shown is equally as important, especially when looking at whiteness, which is so often presented as the default, as the universal, and these images that have allowed white supremacists and neo-Nazis to imagine the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Europe is somehow all white by looking at these very selective, very argumentative propagandist pieces. So how do we find that balance? What is the role of the museum in that? This is where we go to see art, right? We have decided that our art will be displayed in museums, right? So we go to see the art there. How should museums be approaching this aspect of art? I've been thinking about that a lot, and that's a question a lot of people have. I think we need to talk about what a museum is. Museums grew out of wunderkammers, these curiosity cabinets collecting exotica from around the world, both natural world items plus artwork crafted by humans. Then in the 19th century, there was a push towards the aesthetic museum. If they're just aesthetic objects, then they're inert, but we know they're not inert and that they have messages and they communicate them even today. Even the old art still is capable of spreading poison. What can we do? If we decide that a museum's role is to historicize these artworks, we need to take a very different approach. One wall plaque is insufficient. And I don't mean to say that to diminish the work that curators are doing, because a lot of curators at a lot of museums are trying very, very hard to do heavy lifting in the wall plaque to provide historical context, to explain racism, content that may not be immediately apparent in the artworks. The Legion of Honor has been redoing its European galleries and recently wrote a new wall plaque for the Jerome Bath painting, foregrounding its participation in Orientalism. Research, however, and this is depressing, has shown that it doesn't work. Right, because the visual is so much more powerful than some words next to it. That is definitely one reason. Laura Jane Smith has done work on heritage sites and has shown that dominant culture visitors will come and leave a heritage site with their thoughts intact, with their beliefs intact, or even reinforced no matter what they experience while they are there. So one of the sites she studied was Monticello, Jefferson's plantation, where he enslaved a number of people, many, many people. Dominant culture visitors who want to believe the myth of Jefferson is benevolent leave after a tour that features discussion of slavery with those beliefs intact. And sometimes uh, express even more strongly. Sometimes they get angry and they write bad trip advisor reviews. But the success rate is depressingly low. And that tracks, I mean, because people bring their own frames to news content and they bring their own frames to social media content. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so it could be something as simple as confirmation bias or unwillingness to engage with an alternative narrative with a different way of thinking about things, even when confronted with hard facts. I don't think curators can do it themselves. They can't force people to engage or they can't 
make people open-minded. The other piece of a museum that I think about a lot, museums felt like a place that was inaccessible. That's where a different type of person goes. And I'm not going to find anything there for me, right? The first time I remember critically entering a museum was uh, in grad school. Took an art history class. I had to go to Legion of Honor for class. And I remember walking, I'm like, do I belong here? I don't want to screw up. What, What are the... I don't think that's changed. I think museums or a lot of museums still feel that way. They still feel very inaccessible and therefore impenetrable to a lot of people. And I don't know what to do about that either or, you know, whether that protects us from the messages of the artwork or whether that (laughs) is actually something that's not good. I don't know. Just don't look at it. You're fine. (laughs) Well, as an art historian, I have to put in a plug for looking at art. It's really unfortunate that museums have become this place of restriction and gatekeeping and making people feel like they're not good enough. And you see this in sitcoms and in movies where somebody tries to study up really hard before they go to a museum on a date and have to impress somebody. That museums are about performing your class, performing your education instead of discovery or just seeing what's there. Discovery, see curiosity, discovery, that would be amazing. Yeah, it would be. (laughs) Thank you to my guest, Letha Chen, Assistant Professor of Art History at Sonoma State University. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.